Teaching meditation can be a deeply rewarding experience. Help others improve their mental and emotional well-being, reduce stress, improve focus, increase self-awareness and self-regulation, all while deepening your own practice and understanding. Join acclaimed author, Buddhist teacher, and Emmy Award-winning musician David Nickturn on Tuesday, May 28th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time for a free online discussion on teaching meditation in Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation, lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash be here now for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn on May 28th. I'm Rachel, the creative director for Ram Dass's Love Server Member Foundation, and I'd like to welcome you to our Inner Academy, a virtual Dharma hall where our family of wisdom teachers will help you navigate your daily life by bringing ancient wisdom into a modern context. With over 200 hours of audio and video teachings, meditations, and practices from teachers like Ram Dass, Krishna Das, Sharon Salzberg, Jack Kornfield, Roshi Joan Halifax, Joseph Goldstein, and many more, the Inner Academy is your core resource for finding balance, presence, and navigating the ups and downs of your daily life. The Inner Academy has guidance for every step of your journey. Choose from an annual or monthly membership and gain access to past and future courses, retreat replays, virtual community, and much more. If you've been familiar with Love Server Member Foundation for a while, you'll know that most of our offerings are given freely or on a sliding scale basis. So when you subscribe to the Inner Academy, you're paying it forward and bolstering our ability to continue creating accessible offerings for all in the future, as Ramdas wished for us to do. Be here now and start your journey with Ramdas's Inner Academy today. For more, visit ramdas.org forward slash Inner Academy. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to the Meta Hour Podcast with Sharon Salzberg, where Buddhist wisdom meets everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Be Here Now Network. If you're interested in supporting Meta Hour, please visit BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Sharon. Uh, George and I have are old, old friends. We, we've known each other a long time and as friends. And uh, we've done presentations together and lectures together. This, I believe, is the first retreat we've actually ever taught together. And just before dinner, George was explaining to me what a center fielder does and how he likes to do that. And I said, I like to do that too. But someone has to go first, right? Yeah. So that tonight, that's me. Um, so I really just want to kind of set the stage in some context and, and welcome you more fully. Uh, I was telling someone earlier today that many times these days, 
if I'm at a party or some social situation and somebody says, what do you do? Because that's what we say. I say I teach meditation. And these days, a very common response is, oh, I tried that once. I failed at it. And I'm really intrigued by that. You know, like, what do we bring with us as expectation, as, as assumption that is contouring our experience? Like, so I say, you know, I say, well, what makes you think you failed at it? <clears throat> and very often people will say something like, I failed at it because I couldn't make my mind blank. I couldn't stop thinking. I couldn't have only nice thoughts. I couldn't keep the anxiety from arising. I couldn't keep sleepiness at bay. And from our point of view, it is impossible to fail at it because you cannot be having the wrong experience. What's important is not so much what is arising, but how we are relating to what's arising, right? Like how much balance, how much presence, how much kindness, how much compassion are we bringing forth in relationship to those crazy thoughts? you know, or that repetitive emotion or whatever it might be. So what's happening is not the critical question. The growth, the transition, the transformation, even the radical transformation happens in how we relate to it. So you can't fail at it. And I usually try to spend a good deal of time just thinking, like, what do we expect? And, you know, often those expectations are so unfair to ourselves. It just goes in that column. Another unjust way I treated myself today, right? Uh, and so we can change that. We can turn that around and get a better understanding of, of the context and what happens and how it works. And, and then we just practice, which is an amazing thing to have, you know, uh, even a few days where someone else is cooking and they're taking care of us. And I mean, we have like a staff here taking care of us, right? And and uh, all of that kind of abundance of, of care. And our responsibility is to cultivate a greater depth of awareness and compassion. It's kind of amazing. So, uh, and we'll have fun in its own strange way. Um, so, dear, it's yours. You do not know the power of the dark side. What? <laughs> you do not know the power of the dark side. <laughs> Hello. Um, Great to be here. Um, as you can see, I laugh at my own <coughs> jokes. Um, so here. So, apologize for being a few minutes late. Uh, and at the same time, you might have noticed when I came in, I bowed to the statue of the Buddha. And that's something that I like to start off with recognizing is the fact that we all have Buddha nature. For some of us, we might call it Christ consciousness or divine spark. And that when I'm bowing to the Buddha, I'm really bowing to the Buddha and myself and the, and the Buddha and everyone else, that divine spark. And so you might say we start off with the original blessing rather than the original sin. And that there's nothing wrong per se. It's just how do we, how do we access that divinity that's inside? You know, when they asked Michelangelo, how does he create these masterpieces out of these blocks of marble? And he said, all I do is chip away to get to the masterpiece that's already inside. So we have a masterpiece inside. And so this process about be still and know or, or to start to look at our mind, and first thing you recognize is you don't have control of it. And it's shameless 
what it can think about. And that all we're trying to do is we're not trying to stop thinking. We're not trying to make things happen or not happen. All we're doing is being present to what is, and then we create this space between stimulus and response. So in that space, we can choose our response. And sometimes we don't know what to choose until we make a choice or we don't make a choice, and then we notice how, like I like to say, how's that working for you? <laughs> it's not working then we can go back and we can start again. And it's interesting, you folks must have computers, iPhones, and all sorts of uh, um, devices. And when it doesn't work, if you turn it off and turn it back on, it goes back to the, to the reset. It resets. That's, that's what we do moment to moment. When we don't, if we're getting gobbledygook or we're not, you know, it's like your, the screen gets frozen or, you know, it's telling you you don't have enough RAM or memory. And, of course, that happens when we get stressed out and we don't have access to things and we go back to old behavior. So this whole process of becoming willing to look at our experience in a way as Sharon, sometimes, you know, I won't say this, I refer to, her, to Sharon as the mother of loving kindness and compassion because ever since I met her, that's what she, that's, that's who she is. She teaches it, but, but that's who she is. It comes through her pores. And so can we bring that to our experience? And if you're anything like me, like I was when I got here, I was that lone warrior, I'd do it myself. And, you know, you're not supposed to smile. You're supposed to be, you know, no compassion, none. Sitting too on the cushion to the point that my... You know, I hurt my knee because I sat through it or denied the pain. That's not compassion. Compassion is being able to look at ourselves with kind eyes and realize, oh, we are a masterpiece. And how can we access that? And so when I came, just to give you a little experience, I didn't come here because I thought it was cool or intellectual, an intellectual um, experiment. I came here because my butt was on fire. I was in a lot of pain, had chronic pain. And before that, I, when I was an athlete and I used um, pain medication, I got addicted to pain medication, illegal drugs, alcohol. And so it took me a while before I realized that I was just self-medicating and that, that once I gave up, uh, the substances, I had to deal with that pain. And as, they, as um, Mr. Frost, the poet, says, the only way out is through. And so I learned how to relate to my pain in a way where I was creating more ease, more compassion, although at the time it didn't feel like compassion, but now as I look back, it was compassion, to just be with it and realize that it's only by understanding how I'm relating to my experience and how much of it am, am, am I creating the suffering, to see that there's suffering, the first noble truth, and that there was a way out. And the way out had to do, it was an inside job. It was an inside out, not somebody out there. So when I grew up Baptist, we would call that idol worship. You know, some God out there or some um, image, some idol. 
where I realize there's no, it's inside. It's not about going out there for help, it's about being in here and then seeing how we can relate to our experience through word, thought, and deed in a way that we, would not only do we have a more compassion, we have more joy and we have more clarity of how we are causing suffering for ourselves and others. The mind that I can bring to those problems when I leave here can be, give me a lot more clarity, a lot more balance, a lot more ease. So it's exciting to be here. There's, there's, there's an amazing uh, moments ahead, and I like to think that the best moments are ahead of me. And the best moment is this moment. And I'll share another little secret with you. Right now, there's nothing wrong. Right now, there is nothing wrong. And if there's something wrong, it's because you're thinking about what happened or what might happen. So it's an interesting contemplation, <coughs> reflection. This moment is all we have. And Krishnamurti said, freedom now or never. So if you want love, you want a loving kindness, compassion, this moment is the time to do it, feel it. Good thing I didn't have much to say. <laughs> so when I talked about being a center fielder, what I didn't share with Sharon is center fielder is where all the action is. So you're always moving and sometimes the ball gets hit to you and you got to take care of business. So even though I like to fill in the gaps, I don't mind leading every once in a while. But then it's, it's really more about uh, what the situation calls for. And I think that's what she was saying as, as well is, is that the moment, if we are in the moment, we know what to do. Okay. You want to leave the sitting or begin the Yes, okay, we could do that. Uh, you know, I'm going to experiment a little bit. Um, the first introduction of the mindfulness. So we talked about the breath, right? And let's talk about the body a little bit. What I'd like us to do is to stand up, but before you stand up, and people who can't, that's okay. Before you stand up, I want you to pay attention to, as you are moving, how your body feels. So just standing up, ready? And feeling the body as you stand up. And just tuning in to the body, standing, and keep your eyes open. And you know, some of us are going to be there for whatever just to be with it and to breathe. And you can play with closing your eyes and just feeling your body standing. And the idea is not to have your knees locked too far back or, or too far. Can you hear me? Okay, or too far, uh, like back, like this. But just finding some place where you can find some balance and just tuning into your body and just breathing in, we like to do the belly breathing, so you're breathing in, your belly expands, your belly contracts, and if you can keep your mouth closed and just breathe through your nose, and just feeling the breath. And so what we're really doing is we're standing and breathing in and out and knowing it. You breathe in, it feels the 
feel the breath. You breathe out, you can feel the breath, you can feel the body. So if you get involved in thoughts or images or sounds, you just notice that there's thinking going on or there's sounds, and just thinking about your body, thinking about the breath, you're there. And just realizing, we'll look at the body a little bit, just making sure your eyelids are lightly closed, if you have your eyes closed, so that there's no, no tension there. And just breathing and finding that place where you can be balanced. And if you're not feeling yourself breathing, that's okay. Just keep tuning into your body and your breath, and you'll notice that when you breathe in, the lungs are expanding, belly's expanding, the rib cage is moving, and as you breathe out, you can feel the corresponding activity of the out-breath. So just tuning in to the body and the breath to the extent that we know that there is a body and that we are standing and breathing, just to the extent that we can feel that there is a body. So we don't have to think about it, what kind of body it is, or you know, whether it uh, should feel a certain way or not, it's not like that. It's just being with whatever is there. So we'll spend just a few more moments of just sitting, I mean, standing and breathing and knowing it. Then when you're ready, when you open your eyes, just making your way back to your seat, but I want you to tune into your body and feel what it feels like to go from standing to sitting and to feel yourself and then taking your position on the cushion, on the chair. And the idea is to sit with your sternum straight, but not rigid. And doing, continuing to be aware of the body and the breath. And now it's really obvious that we're sitting. And you can prove that out by feeling the touch points. In other words, where your body's making contact with the cushion or the chair. You can even be aware of your hands, where your hands are, whether you're grasping them together or you have, just have them lightly on your legs or thighs. And just continuing to breathe, and for some of us, because you've been breathing, just breathe a little bit deeper, a few deeper in and out breaths, and see if we can just breathe out and then let the in-breath come in and allow it to breathe itself. And if you're controlling the breath, then that's okay too, just noticing that you're breathing in and you're breathing out. So we just need to be aware of the body and the breath just to the extent that we know there's a body just to the extent of what we call bare awareness, just being able to feel the sensations, the bare sensations. So whether it's cool or heat or tightness or ease. Whether the body feels energized or sluggish. So if the energy is high or low, just being able to feel the sensations of sitting and breathing. The bare sensations, as Sharon referred to, not labeling them what's going on, like my knee or, or my foot or my hand, just noticing the hand and the sensations that are there. Not the label, but just the sensations that are in that part of the body.
and that we can allow sound to come and go. We can allow thoughts to come and go. Images, smells, taste. And anchoring ourselves in the body, in the here and now, in the body, in the breath. And as has been mentioned before, if you're not able to feel it, that's okay. Just hang out in the body and the breath. And at some point, you'll be able to feel one aspect of breathing in, even if it's just for a millisecond, one aspect of breathing out. So just feeling the body as a whole while sitting and breathing and knowing it. So there will be moments where I won't say anything and we'll have the silence and that's when you can start to exercise your own uh, volition of just noticing the body and the breath. And when the mind is engaged in thinking other than feeling the breath or thinking about the breath of the body, you just think about the breath, think about the body and your attention is right there. So we'll take a few more moments of just sitting and breathing and knowing it. And shortly you will hear the sound of the bell, which is actually signaling the end. So see about being with your breath in the body and allowing the sound of the bell to arise and fade away. Thank you. Are you all sleepy? Are you as sleepy as you look? <laughs>
we thought we would go back to the questions and continue on. So see if you can stay awake. Hi. Um, I am a real novice at this. This is the first time I've ever done anything like this, and I have a very kind of basic question, mm -hmm. and that is whether you can define meditation, and is there a connection between meditation and mindfulness? Mm -hmm. That's a good question. Someone just asked me that on a podcast. It's not that basic. Um, the word in Pali, the language of the original Buddhist text, you know, or you could say Sanskrit, it's another form, uh, that we translate as meditation is bhavana, B-H-A-V-A-N-A, and it literally means cultivation. So in meditation, we are cultivating the ground so that certain things, certain qualities can emerge. Insight, awareness, balance, love, right? We're cultivating the ground so that the conditions come into place for these things to emerge. So meditation is cultivation, or we say contemplation, but um, these days, but it's really, it's, it's a purposeful um, period of time in which we are strengthening qualities like awareness, tranquility, peace, wisdom, and so on. Uh, one of the great skills of meditation is mindfulness. In meditation practice, we are strengthening a lot of things um, in the sense of like a means to an end. You know, the cultivation is done through strengthening concentration, through strengthening mindfulness, through strengthening loving kindness, and then the th qualities we want will emerge from that. Um, mindfulness means uh, an ability to be aware without adding grasping, aversion, delusion, or ability to be aware of things more as they are without so much of those habitual reactions taking over. They may arise, but they don't have to take over, right? And there are a million ways to cultivate mindfulness. You don't have to meditate in order to cultivate mindfulness by any means. Um, but it's a pretty direct way. And it's, it's a kind of streamlined way of, of doing it because you're kind of actively repeating and repeating and repeating. Um, and you apparently lay different pathways in your brain um, through that repetition, which is why they say, uh, neuroscientists would say that it takes about a month to reconfigure your brain. Um, some people say two months, but no one's saying like 10 years, you know. Uh, it, it's somewhere in there, um, and you'll see changes in structure and function in brain patterns. Uh, that's not how I measure results. I measure results in life, you know. You're like happier, or, you know. Uh, relationships are better or things like that but but that's what the science says something like that so um and that's through meditation you know because it is so streamlined and and direct but you might choose not to meditate you might choose to you know cultivate mindfulness and awareness some other way and it should be fine you know um 
The thing is, it needs to be real. Uh, even if meditation is your thing, it is much easier to think about meditation than to do meditation. It's much easier to write books about meditation than to do meditation. Uh, and when I wrote that book, I mentioned Real Happiness, which has a lot of guided meditations in it. And I was on tour with that book. So many people came up to me and said, this is like the most incredible thing. I'm buying your book for my cousin. I could never do it. And I'd say, well, wait a minute. What's this I could never do it thing, you know? And it's like, happy for the cousin, I'm happy for me, but what's this, you know, like... Uh, so in many ways, we tend to exclude ourselves or think of it in the abstract or that would be a good idea when I move to a quieter place or whatever it is, you know? Um, so the hardest thing of all is the doing of it, but that's what actually makes the difference. So however you choose to do it. Uh, that's the problem I'm having with it. It's not quite grasping yeah. how to do it. Well, I mean, I can talk about the meditative process, and that's how it's a very nice way of doing it. Uh, it doesn't take that long each day. Um, so it's a combination of some dedicated period each day. Neuroscience also says about nine minutes. And I'm always teasing my friends who are neuroscientists. Because the way I put it is this, like, this is America. Everybody wants to know what's the least amount of time I can put into this thing and still get a result. Or if you're talking to one of them and still get my brain to change, which is what people ask about. And someone asked me that on a podcast recently, too, in exactly those words. They didn't say this is America. They said, what's the least amount of time you can put into this thing and still get your, your brain to change? And I usually say, I don't know if it's that healthy to go for the bare minimum, you know? But uh, twice the bare minimum is 20 minutes a day. That's not such a huge investment, right? Um, so let's say it's 10 to 20 minutes a day, uh, every day, as much as possible, because it's the repetition that's going to make the difference. And someday, if you don't have 20 minutes or 10 minutes, do two, you know, just like lay it in, like that groove. And, um, you know, the science is really in its infancy. It's very, very much at the beginning, but it does show these things so far, you know? And um, the hot new area of, of meditative research is actually genetic expression. It's like the tide of the brain already, you know? Um, that's really the edge. And so I had to get someone to explain it to me, which, uh, you know, apparently like our genes come with like little loudspeakers. And so you might have a big genetic load, say for some problem, but if the loudspeaker is not turned on, it's not gonna have a big effect. Or somebody explained to me if a, a librarian, a librarian can't change the word in a book, the words in a book, but they can hide the book under the desk so that the community doesn't get to see it. You know, so you can't change your genetic code necessarily, but you can make it ineffectual or less effective, right, if you want to, through meditation. So there's all kinds of studies going on about all kinds of things, but um, that, you know, that's basically what I would mostly offer is the suggestion to at least try it for a month, something like that. And then... The it is... The it is meditation. It's sitting. sitting. It could be sitting. It could be walking. It's a dedicated period of about a minimum of 10 minutes a day where your goal is to deepen or cultivate qualities like awareness or loving kindness. You know, it could be many 
any of many different techniques. It could be the breath. It could be um, sweeping your attention through your body. It could be loving kindness, which we'll do later. It could be lots of different possibilities. And, and that's a period of experimentation to sort of see if there's a technique you feel more interested in or better about than, than others. But it doesn't have to be sitting. It could be walking. Uh, it could be lying down, for that matter, if you're not going to fall asleep. Uh, you know, but it's a dedicated period each day. And we'll, you know, we'll talk much more about this tomorrow. But, um, and I do usually say to people, well, what's the period of time you feel comfortable experimenting with? And, and one friend, for example, said to me, 10 minutes a day for a month. And I said, great. You know, see if you can really do it 10 minutes a day for a month. And then you do want to evaluate, is this interesting to continue? Is this worth keeping going? But the place to look to see if it's made any, making any difference is your life. It's not in that formal 10-minute period because that may not change much, right? But if you really look at your life, you will see a difference. You'll see the way you speak to yourself when you make a mistake, the way you meet a stranger, um, your ability to let go your ability to have perspective, to remember everything changes, uh, the degree of kindness. You have, it all shifts. But it shifts in this very natural way because um, this is also confusing a lot for people. You know, They think, oh, you're going to get really self-conscious, like you're going to be in an elevator fuming at somebody who's striking up a conversation, and you're going to have to think, oh, God, you know. And this This retreat has a a better title than many, but a lot of retreats would be like opening your heart forever or something like that, you know? And you think, God, I went to that opening your heart forever retreat and, you know, and like my heart's just like, I can't stand this person. And, you know, I better act like I like them because I went to that stupid retreat. And, um, it's not like that. You're not lecturing yourself. We're trying to, you know, act in a way you don't really feel. But so much shifts inside of us just in the course of doing the practice in ways we don't even notice until we see it in our lives. And so I've seen what I consider really a tremendous amount of frustration in people because they're not looking at their life. They're looking at that 10-minute period a day. You know, and I'm not floating away in bliss yet. I'm still getting sleepy or, or whatever. But underneath that, you're changing. So you get, just give it a shot. Thank you. <laughs> Hi. <laughs> I had forgotten that you first studied with Glinka. That's amazing. So since we're talking about the practice, I'm curious to ask you, I know at least later in his life, he was quite strict about mm -hmm. you have to only sit, this walking thing, certainly for beginners, this walking thing is too hard. Mm -hmm. You need to sit and you need to not move. And you know, just so, so strict. And I'm wondering, for you, for insight, is it more open about being able to stand or lie down or sit or walk because otherwise us fussy modern people will all walk out of the room? Uh, or do you think they're equally effective? Is there sort of a shift in thought on mm -hmm. what's more effective? I was curious to hear about that. Um, I think they're equally effective. The Buddha said that. Um, speaking of authorities, uh, he said you can sit in any, you can practice in any, I say sit because it's symbolic, you know. You can practice in any of four postures, sitting, standing, walking, or lying down. Um, and that's in terms of formal practice. Then on top of that, there's short moments many times, which I didn't get into, but 
you know, I would, I would add that, you know, because it's enjoyable. It's like to actually taste that tea when you're drinking it is like a really enjoyable thing, you know. And so just these little activities to really do wholeheartedly kind of changes our day as well. But back to your question, the Buddha did say that. Um, and I feel like many, you know, I mean, we meet many teachers perhaps and, and see lots of different approaches and everybody has to decide what feels right, you know, for them. And what's right in a certain period of your life may not be right for your entire life, but it's right for that period. Um, and that's great, you know, in whatever, whatever fashion. Um, what was I going to say? I was going to say something else. Um, I've also felt that, um, you know, many different approaches, many different schools uh, will take kind of a core attribute they're cultivating and then they build around it ultimately because in the end it's a balance. It's like many of you have heard me talk about or write about uh, when we first opened the Insight Meditation Society in Barry, Massachusetts, it was, uh, we were looking at property through 1975. Um, Joseph Goldstein and I had met in India, and Jack Cornfield was having a kind of parallel life in Thailand at the same time, and we met up in Boulder in 1974, and we were all back in the States, and uh, somebody suggested to us a little while later that we start a retreat center in this country, and we were like, you know, I was 23. We were like so young and naive. I don't even know what a mortgage was, I don't think, you know. And like, and we said, sure, that sounds great. And then they said, the people who really can help you are in Massachusetts, which was true, unfortunately, because it's winter, but it turned out to be true. So uh, we looked up and down the East Coast for property, and we finally ended up at this Catholic novitiate in Barry, Massachusetts. And um, this is like the end of 1975, and we hadn't been back that long, and it was totally unclear how many people would ever in this country would ever be interested in meditation or this form of meditation. And so when we finally saw the place. It's, it's certainly smaller than this, but it's still, it was a lot for us. You know, it can sleep about 97 people and 100 people, and it's got all these offices and the chapel and the kitchen, you know, and like, and we thought, whoa, this is like crazy big. You know, maybe it's way too big. And on the other hand, it seemed perfect for a retreat center. It's very pretty. It's wonderful, really. And we couldn't decide what to do, so we went to downtown Barry for lunch. And Barry's a very classical uh, New England town with a town green. And in those days, on the center of it, in the center of it, there was a monument which had the Barry town motto engraved upon it. And it turns out the Barrytown motto is tranquil and alert. So we took a look at that and we said, okay, there's an omen. Any town that has a motto like tranquil and alert should have a meditation center in it. Because we're always talking about those qualities and we're always talking about bringing them into balance. We deepen tranquility, peace, calm, concentration, relaxation, and we strengthen energy and connection and interest and investigation and alertness. We're always talking about that. You know, so in the end, it's a balancing act of many different qualities. And um, I've often felt that um, 
it's likely that many teachers or many approaches will take a quality and really use that as the foundation, and then they'll build the rest around it. So for Goenka and you know, teachers like him, it's like resolve, you know, this kind of strong determination, and you get that going, which is a very energized, committed quality, you get that going, and then you work on tranquility and other things. So other teachers is different. We once brought, um, once we you know, opened the center, uh, we brought a very great uh, Burmese meditation master, Nadu Panditu, who came later, who was also a great one, but much earlier, this uh, monk named Tampulu Sayadaw. And uh, he was very famous, and um, his students loved him, and I can see why. And, uh, you know, so we're sitting up in one of the rooms, and uh, uh, they say, he, I don't know, it was a complicated story, they say he hadn't lied down in like 35 years, you know, he slept sitting up in a chair. So he saw the bed and he laughed, you know, and he says, like, take it out. Uh, but he also, we were just sitting, a bunch of us talking, and somebody said to him, I feel a lot of physical pain when I meditate. What should I do? And um, he pointed to this kind of like plush arm, upholstered armchair in the room, and he said, oh, you should get up right away and go sit in something like that. And I thought, where were you when I was in India? You know, like sitting on the floor crying, you know, and sweating with Goenka. Like, um, and then he went on to say that his core value was tranquility, basically. And that he really wanted to help his students deepen that kind of tranquility. And later they could work with resolve and strength and kind of stretching, you know, commitments and... I mean, literally stretching. I mean, you know, taking things further. Um, I worked with Saito Pandita, who was another great Burmese master we brought, and maybe I'll close with this, because um, it's a good uh, example of mindfulness in, in daily life. And then, um, you know, Upandita, we, we brought uh, to the Insight Meditation Society in 1985. He was... Uh, we had never met him, but we heard he was a great, great teacher. And um, so he came to teach this three-month retreat. And uh, he arrived the day before. And that's when I met him. I was going to sit. I did sit. Um, and he was a great, great teacher. And he also was incredibly fierce and demanding and intense. And um, and he worked very individually with everybody, and it was a silent retreat. So it was only like, like my friend Joseph, you know, sat, and I had no idea what he was going through, or, you know, he had no idea what I was going through, except um, the way, and Upandita, we saw Upandita six days a week for these very short individual meetings just to describe our practice and get some feedback. And so most of us took some notes, you know, because he wanted data. He wanted, like, direct report. He wanted like, um, you know, he didn't want to hear like I had a terrible morning. He wanted to hear I sat down, I fell asleep, I couldn't move when I woke up because I had, you know, cramp in my leg or whatever. Um, that's what he wanted. So most of us took some notes and I would go in. He also had a certain um, pedagogy where he tended to repeat himself a billion times. Uh, Asian monastic pedagogy is all repetition. 
right? You just hear it again and again and again and again. So he would repeat himself until something shifted inside of you, and then he'd go on to something else. So we just got into this thing where I would go to see him for my meeting with him. And before I could read my notes, he'd say, tell me everything you noticed when you drank a cup of tea, which was nothing. And that was it. He'd send me away. So I do sitting meditation. I do walking meditation. And when I drank a cup of tea, I, you know, I'd feel the warmth of the teacup and I'd slowly lift the cup and I would, I would feel, I would smell the tea, I would taste the tea. And I'd go in to see him the next day. Before I could say anything, he'd say, tell me everything you noticed when you washed your face, which was nothing. <laughs> so I'd leave and I'd sit and I'd walk and when I washed my face, I felt my hands in the water and I felt the water in my face. And when I drank a cup of tea, I did it really slowly in case he went back to that. <laughs> And I'd go and see him the next day, tell me everything you noticed when you took off your shoes, which was nothing. And I left, and then, you know, and I quickly saw where things were going. And in my mind, I called it the torment of continuity, like everything. But in reality, it was fabulous, because everything became a meditation. It wasn't like I'd be drinking a cup of tea in the dining room, and then I'd get all distracted. And I think oh, I better run back into the meditation hall to regroup. I had to do it right there. You know, because maybe that was going to be the question of the day or opening the door or like, and I really could not believe it at first, but it was amazing. And as a consequence, I started slowing down a lot because everything was kind of a complete, you don't have to do it slowly, but the way he was working with me, I was ending up doing it slowly. So everyone at the end, they made fun of me, you know, like I was so slow. And I kept looking at these people like Joseph, like, who were dashing around. I think, why isn't anyone else listening to him? Because I didn't know he wasn't doing this with everybody. You know, and I thought, God, they're moving so fast. They're like, so disobedient. What is it about me that I'm suddenly like moving? You know? So Larry Rosenberg, who's a, an old friend, a teacher in Cambridge, he had a joke at the end. Um, he said, I was at one end of the dining room and uh, he started, I was walking. And he got a toothache, had to get a ride into Cambridge, got his tooth fixed, came back, and I was only at the other end of the dining room, <laughs> which is how everybody was treating me, you know, like, what are you doing? It's like, I don't know, I'm just doing it, you know. But, uh, you know, he, that was his thing with me, is like continuity of practice, that's what we're going to work with. And... You know, he worked with other people in very different ways. But it was, there was a thing. And I could see, oh, yes, you know, he's really focused on me getting this sort of built as a foundation. And then we can work in other ways. So I wasn't sitting uh, with pain. I wasn't doing other kind of edgy things. Um, that was, you know, continuity is my thing. And I think it's actually the best thing. Because I think it's at the heart of the practice, you know. And, a retreat environment is the most incredible thing, because what a luxury. You know, he told me things like, um, you know, one of the things, a very um, subtle aspect of the practice, which I talked about a little bit before, was to look at the intention behind an action. Um, you know, and we start with physical movement, like just to give pause, to give a break before you like leap to your feet, say at the end of a sitting, to notice if you can catch the intention, which may be verbal, like time to get up, or it may be more like almost your 
muscles are like quivering, you know, there's different forms of it. And he said to me, if you, if you do major movement, like in the dining room, you stand up without having given time to look for the intention, he said, sit down again and do it again. And I thought, yeah, right, you know? So what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna stand up and sit down and stand up and sit down. And then I thought, you know what, I could. Because I have nothing else to do here. And nobody would like freak out, you know, like that woman standing up and sitting down, standing up and sitting down. Because they were probably doing some form of it too. And it's like, what a luxury, you know, to only be dedicated to cultivating awareness in, in our time here. Thank you for listening. For more information about Sharon's many offerings and her ongoing teaching schedule, please visit her website at SharonSalzberg.com.